is What Shall We Do About with Sam Robinson. Hello and welcome to a brand new season of What Shall We Do About, the show that's still setting out to solve the world's less pressing problems. If you were offered the opportunity to travel to Mars, would you go? And what if it was a one-way trip, meaning that you would be farewelling Earth and everything on Earth for good? Personally, I couldn't do it. And yet for Diane McGrath, this is a very real goal. Diane is one of the remaining 100 candidates vying for a position to travel to the Red Planet with Mars One in 2031 and never return to Earth. Imagine that, leaving behind everything you know while being bound for a planet where no person has ever set foot before and still so much is unknown. I needed to better understand this situation and so I connected with Diane to ask, what shall we do about Mars? And also discover why we as a human race are so infatuated with our neighbouring planet. Diane McGrath, I am so excited to talk to someone who may be going into space, not just into space, but to another planet. How are you this morning? I'm great, thanks, Sam. How are you doing? I'm good. Now, look, uh, you are, if I'm right, one of the remaining candidates to go to Mars in the year 2031. Now, am I right that there was over 200,000 applicants and you're one of the last 100? It's crazy to think about sometimes that so many people started that application process. But yes, you're absolutely right, Sam. There are 100 of us left now worldwide out of what was a a massive pool of potential candidates. Phenomenal opportunity and just delighted and honoured to have come this far. It's crazy. How long have you been on this journey for? Well, I submitted my application for the Mars One mission back in 2013. So this has been the longest job interview of my life, Sam. I don't know how long it usually takes for um, your friends to get jobs, but normally not quite so long. (laughs) But I think that it's been something that it's been quite a... uh, I guess a journey of patience and, and faith and just allowing the process to take the time it needs to take and that's been I guess part of the part of the journey for me has been around the resilience of continuing to move through what's been a very very long process. Yeah a really long process and still there's a good 10 or so years till 2031 and what I find fascinating about this mission is that it's a one-way mission. You're willing to go even if it means not coming back because that's kind of the the deal why are you so keen to say goodbye to Earth? Yes. <laughs> it's not that I don't like Earth. I'm kind of um, fond of this planet. It's <laughs> I can breathe the air here and my family are all here and there's lots of wonderful things about this planet. However, the idea for me when I first heard about Mars One to go one way, I thought how extraordinary it was, how bold but then when I thought about it a bit more and I researched into who Mars One was and why they thought it was possible, it made sense because it actually reduces some of the risk because there's been over 50-odd missions to Mars since the 1960s, but they've all been one way. So so technically, we should be able to get stuff one way to Mars. We just haven't been able to bring anything back yet. So I thought, well, it's it's lower risk by going one way. Um, But then for me, because I'm very passionate about sustainability, I thought if we're going to have to live on Mars, we treat something so much differently when we choose to stay than if we're just visiting. 
you know so if, i don't know what, when you go on holidays or when you you know are, are visiting friends anytime we go somewhere permanently we really do make this our home we treat things with a lot more respect and we think about the resources so much more differently and i thought well if we have to do that to live on mars then that planet might be protected just a little bit more mm, absolutely well what does the next 10 years look like? So if, if the Mars One mission is 2031, you're still a candidate now. What's the mm. time frame look like across the next decade? Well, you're right. I am still a candidate now. So I haven't even finished the selection process just yet, Sam. There's another stage which will be trimming the 100 of us who are left down to what will be roughly about either 12 to, to 24, where they'll put us into crews of, of four to go through this 10 years of training that you mentioned. And that will be... 10 years of, of technical training, 10 years of training as a crew as well to, to develop a, a dynamic crew that can stand in for each other's weakness, understand each other such, as such a tight unit um, and, and practice ways of operating together that we can work autonomously on Mars. And then there'll be the personal training as well. So yes, while technically we'll be trained on, on everything from coding to obviously how to fly a spaceship to, <laughs> to every medical procedures whatever else because there's nothing on mars we'll have to learn how to do everything there'll be the resilience that can only come through the personal training so to understand how we're going to be able to ex experience and deal with the extraordinary isolation that we face i mean it's the most isolating and stressful job in the solar system really i mean how do you prepare someone for that so yeah, while there'll be 10 years of psychological training, there's going to have to be a lot that we do personally there to invest in ourselves. Mm. What, at what stage will you find out if you're successful when you're actually going? Don't know yet. We're waiting for Mars One to announce when they're bringing the 100 of us together to go through the selection process, which, of course, the same with, with COVID, naturally, as you can imagine, trying to bring people from what is, I think, around, we're around... 34 different countries to bring us all together somewhere that's going to accept people mm. is very difficult. I mean, I'm um, based in Victoria. And so it's only been recently we could travel five kilometers from our home, <laughs> let alone to, we can't even go to another country yet. Like, we're yeah. like we might be able to go to New South Wales in a couple of weeks time. That's exciting. So it's, <laughs> so it's a bit of a journey before they can bring all hundred of us together. Um, so, but once they do that, then of course, you know, that will speed the process up quite a bit. And, but in the meantime, they, the head of Mars One keeps us in the loop with what they're doing mm. um, so that we can be assured that, that's okay. Things are still progressing. We just have to be on pause for that. But I guess for myself, though, I haven't been personally on pause. I've been still doing those things to to help myself be as ready for it as possible by by continuing to learn, by continuing meditation and, and mindfulness sort of practice through doing exercise as much as I can so that I'm as mentally and physically ready as possible. So uh, I'm keen to know a bit more about the expedition. So if you mm -hmm. are successful and you become one of those mm -hmm. going to Mars, how long will the trip take and how many people will you be with on the, on the spacecraft? Mm -hmm. So each crew, uh, Sam, will be of four individuals and they will be a crew that's um, gender balanced as well as age diverse and of different cultures, so different ethnic backgrounds, which is wonderful. Uh, and the, the journey of each crew of four, and they'll be sending 
accrual for every two years from 2031 onwards. Uh, and that journey from Earth to Mars takes roughly about seven months. It does depend on where the planets are in their orbit, but the, the ideal transit time between the two is fastest uh, at around a seven-month journey. So that's it's quite the car trip. It's like getting in at Easter and, you know, and getting out at Christmas. Mm. Day, with nothing in between. <laughs> That's a long haul flight, Diane. It's quite the long. It's, it's it's a little bit longer than the the Perth to London. I haven't done that flight yet, and I think there'll be a little while before we get to do that. But I'm curious to to try that super long haul Perth to London flight one day. Just make sure you got enough to keep you hydrated for the journey. It's a long way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so say when you get to Mars, I'm curious mm. to know. You know, you're there for good. That's that's where you're mm. going to end up. What work are you going to be doing on Mars? Because you kind of get there and it's a completely blank slate, but it's also a planet that's not really habitable at the moment. Yeah, that's right. It's not habitable. And that's, well, it does have the 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 resources to make it so, though. So you, you raise an important point. We can't just stand outside on the planet Mars and take a big, deep breath because the air on Mars, it's 95% carbon dioxide. So we don't have sufficient oxygen in the air and the atmospheric pressure on Mars is very, very low. It's about a thousandth of what we have here on Earth. So it's going to be something which is much more treacherous to us than even the inability to breathe it very well. Hmm. So we'll need to ensure that the, the environment that we create for ourselves on Mars is in an enclosed environment. So within our habitat and in spacesuits uh, that are pressurized and have oxygen that we can produce on mars and and that's possible there is a lot of water on mars frozen in the the soil or in the regolith so we can extract water from the soil or that's the end what's anticipated to occur and then melt that like bake that out of the soil to create water and then use electrolysis to split the oxygen off so we can create all the things that we need for life on earth on Mars with the resources that are there. So that'll be part of our job, be maintaining that sort of system that'll ensure our survival throughout our life support system there, as well as growing plants and, and the like as well. And that's going to be an interesting thing to, to try and see gr- something green grow on the red planet would be pretty cool. And and how do you, I'm just thinking, what are you going to eat when you get there? Like there's no animals, there's mm. no plants. How do you ensure that you can actually survive there for the rest of your life? That's right. There is no uh, life on Mars that we understand of that that we normally might eat here on this planet, whether it be plants, uh, animals, insects, whatever it is. And Mars One's concept is to have a hydroponic system, so growing all of our food indoors, which we'll need to do anyway because the the plants won't be able to grow very well outside uh, because of the the conditions of the atmosphere, the temperatures. It's Minus 55 is the average temperature on Mars. bit crisp for plants. They're not going to grow so well. <laughs> Nor would we, I don't think, go so well at minus 55. Another reason to stay indoors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we'd have to be growing everything indoors. Um, but that would be, I mean, plant food is, is wonderful, but the amount of plants we'd need to grow would need such a phenomenal amount of like physical space to grow them in. So to ensure nutrient density we're going to have to consume other forms of protein for example and fats so um, mars one conceives of us eating insects and algae as part of a um, a food system Uh, and that's something that when i first heard about that i thought i've never eaten insects before well not 
knowingly. Mm. <laughs> so, so I started to test that and, and you know, purchased crickets and, um, and, and the like and started playing with some of that at home and, and realized that quite tasty. And so I feel quite comfortable that I'll be able to, to do that on Mars and know that I'll be able to maintain a healthy, nutritious uh, lifestyle there. Well, that's good to know. I mean, you've got to be game to say, yeah, I'm going to give up steak and all the other things that, uh, that you love here on Earth. It's like, you know, there's no, there's no McDonald's up there. No, there's no Maccas. Um, and if I run out of anything, I can't just pop over to the next crater and uh, hope there's a 7-Eleven or anything. We really have to grow everything we need to survive. And, um, and, and I think, you know, Sam, I think we're going to probably go back to some of the practices that our grandparents used to do all the time so canning of fruit and vegetables whatever we can produce and so storing things as they're uh, as they are ready for harvest as opposed to just eating and then throwing things away we can't we can't throw things away there will be no away on mars we everything that we create has to have a function and a secondary or tertiary or whatever further function past that so, which is also very exciting to me because in my interest in sustainability, if we're having to live that way on Mars, because if we don't, I mean, that seven-month journey, that's resupply is impossible, really. Mm. We have to find a way to make sure that everything is can be used and reused and recycled and repurposed. And it, it's the, the golden child of places to, to prove that we can be a sustainable society. Well, sustainability is one of your passions. So, like, I, I believe mm. that, um, you know, sustainability and food waste, you've mentioned that already in this interview, but um, how do you see that work and your and your passion for that and also your passion for Mars overlapping? And uh, you're, you're right. There is a – the two of them, sometimes they look like they're completely different journeys, but then when we start to think about the fact that to live on Mars, we, as mentioned, it's it's almost impossible to, to do so and expect resupply constantly. So we would need to ensure that we have the technology and the systems, like the way we think about and use things and uh, and plan things um, to manage our resources such that they're always there for us. So we, we, can't, we can't afford to just use and pass on, use mm. and move on. We, we really have to think about everything we use and, um, and create it for multi- purpose functions for for example even the plants that we grow what sort of plants would we grow that have benefits that are medicinal as well as nutritive as well as potentially have fabric qualities we have to think about all of these sorts of things so that everything has a function um, beyond just what we normally might use it for and so that for me that's really exciting to think about because if we start to develop these systems for mars that means that we're probably going to change the way we do things here on earth because they're not going to send these new ways of living or these new technologies to mars first without having tested them here first on earth they Mm. would have had to design them here on earth prototype them here on earth built them here on earth and tested them for a long period of time here on this planet before sending anything to mars for us to use to survive so we have the potential by trying to survive on Mars, perhaps, perhaps we might even be able to reshape the way we do things on this planet. So you can see, I don't know, Sam, if that you know uncovers for you a bit more about my my belief that by trying to do something so extraordinary, we can potentially do something really valuable for this planet through that striving to be on Mars. 
And I think it's it's great that, I mean, this is a good point in time to go there because we know from science what damage we've done to this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. If this was 100 years ago, obviously we wouldn't have the technology to go to Mars, but mm. we, we know what not to do to a planet from our own experience. Isn't that sad? It's like, okay, let's we've made a bit of a muck up here. Let's see if we can do it right somewhere else. I, I, I'm hoping that people's concept is not that we're going to run away to Mars because we've messed up this planet. Um, I'd like to think that we use it as a almost a testing ground for developing ways of living and working that we can apply here on Earth in a way that can transform this planet positively. And And that's definitely around protecting the planet because that's part of the Outer Space Treaty. Mm. The Outer Space Treaty, which was signed by all spacefaring nations um, back in the 60s for the under the United Nations, it it'll ensures that all celestial bodies uh, cannot be damaged or contaminated. So we can't dig a big hole on Mars and dump our waste there. We, we must preserve the environment that's there. And that's kind of what the Antarctic Treaty tries to do, but it's had to retrofit. So here we have the chance on Mars to do something from scratch that's theoretically really good and very positive for the environment what else could we possibly do then that's not just around protecting our environment but what about how we share space as a united humanity is there something about the peaceful use of space that we could possibly do too because that's that's the essence as well of the outer space treaty what can we learn from that that might also be helpful as you say it's a it's a big deal to go to Mars, but there's a lot of benefits possibly for our planet today from it. Okay, Diane, you go to Mars, you, you're with your mm-hmm. three others in your shuttle, you, you mm-hmm. land. What yep. are the main tasks that you will be doing uh, once you're there? Well, actually, the first thing we'll do when we get to Mars is nothing. Um, <laughs> if I'm lucky enough to be in the first crew and, and any subsequent crews, we've been told that when the first... Um, landers arrive on Mars with with the humans on them because of course there'll be Mars One's concept is to send a lot of the infrastructure in advance and have that robotically deployed then the human crew is allowed to go to Mars because there'll be oxygen in the tank and 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 water flowing freely indoors um the we'll be told to just stay in the landing module for a while because after seven months of being in weightlessness, we weren't to have experienced gravity for quite some time. And so mm. we'd need to adjust to gravity, uh, make sure that uh, technically the the landing module is is, is secure, that we are safe uh, and that we can't, we have arrived in a location that was anticipated for us to be able to get to uh, our established headquarters. So, so that's to start with is to essentially do almost nothing. Then once we start to to move out of the landing module and into the um, the habitats that have been robotically deployed, which were other landing modules essentially, then our job starts with the finer work that a, a robot just can't do as easily. So, as well as you know working with food production, for example, like planting seeds and and growing the food, is going to be maintaining some of the infrastructure that's a, a little bit more fine that a human hand can get to and work with than a robot can. Um, so not just the the electronics, but also maybe some of the um, construction elements too of, of corridors and, and things like that. So that we don't have to keep going in and out of of modules, but mm. can go between them. So that's a lot of our work will be quite 
technical and physical. Uh, so maintaining good health is going to be very important for us for that. One other question that's come to mind is, so you're going on a one-way mission, you're mm. there for good. Do you mm. get paid? Because money's kind of useless on Mars. <laughs> It's true, isn't it? Yeah. There's nothing on Mars. Like, there's no shops. There's no. Won't have, won't have to pay any rent. It's, it's, <laughs> there's no need for money. And, oh, gosh, imagine if we lived in a society where the way we valued things did not have a dollar sign put to them. Mm. The, the mind boggles and it just leads to different ways of living that, you know, maybe it throws back to days of uh, more community-based sharing and and, um, and contribution of individuals as opposed to, you know, here's my thing, can I have two, um, $2 for that? It, I think it'd be very interesting. So, but we, Mars One has said that they will pay the astronaut crews, and which I think is a responsible thing to do because we don't know what people's individual circumstances may be as they're leaving this planet to go and live the rest of their life on another one. What if, what if on, on Earth they had financial responsibility for elderly parents, for example, mm. um, and were helping support them in, in a nursing home or perhaps they had um, community responsibilities, donations that they made regularly to, to local charities and churches or whatever it may be. So, so I applaud Mars One for wanting to still pay people who are going to Mars, even though there's no function for money on Mars in the early cruise, and because it recognises that you know they're still part of a, a broader community here on Earth. Well, let's talk about Mars, the planet. Um, you know, we, we've long, mm. long wanted to go there, um, and it's actually it's going to happen, <laughs> which is very exciting news. Can you tell us about? Mm. The, what it is it about Mars that's so fascinating and why it would be such a big deal for humans and even yourself uh, to set foot on Mars? It's just, I think because you, you mentioned before about it being you know not very habitable, but in some ways it's the, the most Earth-like planet in our solar system, other than Earth, of course. Uh, mm. it's, it's the most potentially habitable. So it makes it attractive to us. It's always been just the next place we could go other than the moon. And it, it, when it comes to the actual physical distance, it also, it happens to be the next place we can go that's that past the moon. So, so it's achievable in its distance. It's something we can live on when it comes to the, the oxygen, which we can acquire through the subsurface of the, um, the planet. Um, we can create a breathable atmosphere. We can have water. We can, we can grow food indoors. There's, sufficient sunlight that still reaches that planet for us to power ourselves with with solar energy so it becomes a place that is fascinating to us like oh we could do this and it then starts to tap into that pioneering spirit that i think is in so many people on this planet that we we become curious like well, how can we do that can we do that and whether that's people who like to to go camping and uh, without all of the luxuries or maybe some of the early explorers that wondered what is over that, that next mountain range or across mm. that ocean. What is, what is there and available to us? Can we learn more about ourselves by doing this? And I think it's, it's very exciting for us. Perhaps if we, can, if we can do this, what else can we do? It's been a long time, I think, since we've been so inspired to do something like that. Um, we start to see a bit more interest in, in going to space again with obviously SpaceX being 
quite successful recently and and NASA announcing the Artemis missions, which will be to, to once again bring people back to the moon in a few years' time. But no one's been past the moon. No one's been beyond what's called cislunar space. What would that be like? How exciting and curious do you become? But then there's the flip side, and I know that Mars isn't as safe a planet as mm. Earth is. What are the most dangerous mm. aspects of Mars? Yes, even though it is quite Earth-like in many ways, it is quite dangerous. I mean, for human beings, we were we evolved over millennia to be on this planet with this gravity, uh, these atmospheric conditions, this sort of air to breathe, or the food that just wanders around on, on our planet for us to, to harvest and share. It's not something that is there on Mars. There's no food that, that we know of that's there. Nothing grows on the planet. There's no organic matter in in the the soil what's you can't call it soil because it hasn't got any organic matter in it um this we don't have running water on mars the air it's 95 percent co2 the atmospheric pressure will would kill us within a, a couple of minutes and that thin atmosphere as well it, it that means there's very little protection against cosmic and solar radiation so we would have to be protecting ourselves constantly from exposure outside by limiting our time that we go outside the habitats, perhaps to an hour um, a day or less, maybe um, an hour every few days. It'll be like being in lockdown again, but just for life. Mm. (laughs) Are you scared? I'm not, I'm not scared of the technology or the, these risks, Sam, they're, they're known. I guess it's the, the unknowns that, you know, you have to sort of recognise there'll be things that we don't know that we'll experience, the, the difficulty, the challenges, the, the problems. But that's where by being trained as a, as a crew to, to work through a problem together, I have confidence that human ingenuity and I have faith that we'll find solutions. I think that the greatest fears I have are more about uh, how I might respond to, to some of the challenges psychologically and emotionally we can't simulate being this isolated we can go in lockdown for months on end during covid we can put ourselves in a cave somewhere we can do all sorts of things to try and simulate being in lockdown and being in isolation and i've done a lot of isolation training here over the last few years but it's not the same i try and envision what it might be like when you're in that rocket leaving earth and then you turn around and then one day you no longer see planet Earth. It's, it's just a, a dot, one of those many dots in the sky and you don't know which one it is. How will we feel then? How, how isolating and lonely would that be? And no matter what training I've had, will I be prepared for that? Will I have the support I need? So that's my, they're my concerns when I think about that. And so that's why I spend a lot of time working on the, the personal resilience element of stuff here today because well it's not going to hurt me today to become more resilient but it, it might benefit me immensely in the future as well yeah yeah absolutely i, I think you're very brave you're much braver than i am uh diane but you've this has been a goal for a long time Thanks, for sir. you mm, I, it has elon musk has had a lot to say about mars and i know mm. that you going is the is the first step but he has a goal to see a city of one million people on the planet by 2050 mm. Do you think that's feasible? Well, I guess anything is feasible if there's enough intent and enough drive and finance. Um, 
it's technically possible. I mm. mean, he's what he's doing to build these. He's looking to put uh, about a hundred people in his starships, which is he's in the process of developing at the moment, and sends. Um, I think it's like about. 10 of them a year or something like that, over many, many, many years, um, 10 years and 100, no, launch 100, I think he's launching 100 of them, 100 of them a year over mm. more than 10 years. And that's a phenomenal amount of people he'll be sending at, at once. And is it possible? I think, I think it could be if it's supported financially. And even though he's an entrepreneur and has a lot of money behind him, he's still going to need people that are going to be able to afford to buy a ticket on that um but technically he's on he's pretty much on track like he's he's been testing prototypes for the starship for uh, a few years now he started off with this thing called the the starship hopper which has um been a way of trying to see if some of the the base basic technology from for the the launch rockets are, are going to be successful and and he's scaled that up now to uh, multi-engine power so that looks pretty good to date but it's going to be a case of will it continue? Will he still get the the money to continue backing this? And uh, and will he have the market? I hope so because I I could envision in the future that may even be how an organisation such as Mars One um, gets crews to Mars in the future. Like, do you need to buy and de- develop your own technology when someone's so successfully doing it elsewhere? Focus on what we're good at. Mm, absolutely. I've got to ask you before we wrap up mm-hmm. in the great question that David Bowie posed years ago, is there life mm-hmm. on Mars, Diane? <laughs> oh, there will be. That'll be human beings. <laughs> um, <laughs> is there, is there, are there any Martians? I don't think we'll find any little green men. Uh, but, you know, exobiology, the, the study for trying to identify extraterrestrial life it's it is something you can learn and and perhaps by by recognizing what might be some of the um, some of the elements some of the compounds that that exist on Mars perhaps we might be able to identify maybe some sort of microbial style of, of life form that we hadn't considered before we don't know and then, which would be fascinating and, and thus what's important about this whole thing then is that we need to be able to protect that as well and Mm. recognize um, that there's a a potentially sentient um, life form of some sort on another planet that we need to to allow to exist you better name it after yourself diane i think you you get if you go all the way there one way mission you get the right to name something after yourself (laughs) (laughs) diana i might try and name it something a bit more exotic Diosaurus. <laughs> I love that. Look, I-, I could talk to you about Mars forever, but we are out of time. Um, thank you so much for sharing uh, your your passion for this project. And I really do hope that you end up on that mission and uh, we can cheer you on Thanks, in about so. 10 years' time. But before we finish, what shall we do about Mars? What shall we do about it? Hopefully that we treat it with the same sort of respect that the Outer Space Treaty dictates, such that we don't end up damaging it, contaminating it at all, and then... Let's bring that back to Earth. Love it. Thank you so much, Diane McGrath. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Great to chat with you. You can keep up with Diane on Twitter at Light and Portable. That's L-I-T-E and Portable. And you can also find out more at dianemcgrath.com.au. 
Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. I genuinely feel that this episode with Diane was a great way to launch this second season and there's plenty of interesting topics and guests to come. So do hit subscribe to get new episodes in your feeds every Tuesday. You can also connect with the show on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and I'm always keen to hear from you. So shoot me an email anytime at whatshallwedopod at gmail.com. What Shall We Do About is hosted and produced by me, Sam Robinson, with original theme music by Chad Gardner. See you next time.